those very generous words. Uh, John, thank you for yours. Ladies and gentlemen, wonderful to be back here. Uh, thank you to Greg and to Tom for arranging it. Uh, and well done on the smooth handover. There's no truth in the rumor that Tom was going to send Greg as a special CIS envoy to Indonesia uh, to set out alternative plans for the CIS view of things. But it, it's great to be here. I, I think I was last here in February in this hotel. Uh, since then, of course, Australia has had 26 new prime ministers, uh, but still not managed to finish this bloody tram line, which was disturbing my uh, repose even in February of last year and shows no sign of being any more efficient than any other state-sponsored infrastructure scheme. Uh, I came across a remarkably good article in the Financial Review yesterday by a chap called Tom Switzer, which seemed very germane to the issue of the defense of Western civilization and the Enlightenment. Uh, and this was the story uh, that Tom was telling about the Ramsey Center for Western Civilization and Sydney University's reluctance to take money in order to promote uh, the common values that have made this country what it is. And the, I'm going to quote the grounds on which objections were being made, because I think this is a, a phrase that can sustain a certain amount of parsing. Quote, the only people, the only people who invoke Western civilization in anything other than a critical spirit are the racist right. I think that means you, right? <laughs> now, on one level, you dismiss that comment as what George Orwell called duck speak, uh, the larynx issuing noises without the higher brain center being involved at all. Racist right, right? It's one of those phrases that trips off. In fact, Orwell himself uh, said that the word racist now simply means something of which I disapprove. Uh, so if you say James Bartholomew is a racist, all you're really saying is, I don't like that fellow Bartholomew. So on, on one level, it's, it's just the, the idiom of our times, the, the facile sloganizing of the modern left. But I think there's rather more going on. It's a, it, why is it that racist has become the all-purpose boo word of our age. I, I randomly Googled, just before I, I, I came down uh, this evening, I, I randomly Googled things that have been called racist, just to see what would, would come up. And on the, the front page of Google, things that have been called racist were, among other things, white meat, apparently uh, the, the leg of a turkey or chicken is tastier and it is only our subliminal racism that prevents us from seeing it. Uh, Allowing your children to dress as Moana or other uh, Disney characters for Halloween, apposite, it seems, at this time of year. Airport expansion. Do you know airport expansion is racist? There was, a, there was a huge protest at London City Airport by the UK branch of Black Lives Matter against airport expansion, which is racist because apparently uh, it leads to climate change, which is bad for black people. Right? You don't really need me to add, I'm sure you've all worked out that the protesters were all white, uh, the, the, the UK chapter of Black Lives Matter. It would have been impossible to imagine a black person making that argument. Uh, although uh, my, my, my favorite current one is Apu from The Simpsons, who has now been removed because he is a stereotype. Well, no, 
My God, you don't say, Holmes. A, a stereotype in a cartoon. I mean, what on earth do they think a cartoon is? You know, what are all the other characters? The, the fighting Irishman and the grumpy Scot and the, 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 the shyster lawyer and the Italian-American mobster. It's a cartoon, for heaven's sake. But what do you see in the elevation of these sillier and sillier examples is what one might call competitive virtue signaling. Phrase that somebody nicked from me, I think. Competitive <laughs> virtue signaling, right? It's not enough in this day and age to object to the wording of a Kipling poem, right? That, that's too easy. What you have to do is to find something that everyone previously found utterly inoffensive and then show how terribly sensitive you are by noticing a flaw that nobody else had spotted. You know, it is shocking that there are no positive LGBT QWERTY role models in Harry Potter, or it's shocking that there aren't enough black people in Friends. The more inoffensive the original uh, subject, the more you get in your own eyes to, to flaunt your woke credentials. Now, of course, to any normal person, all you're really doing is, is flaunting your extreme priggishness. Because what you're, what you're really doing is trying to say to everyone else, I'm better than you are, because I spotted the political incorrectness. Nonetheless, extraordinary that we're living through this constant expansion, this uh, accelerated and aggressive competitive offence-taking. You see, it won't quite do to say, this is political correctness gone mad. Something far more serious is underway. In defining statements by the identity or color of the person who speaks them, rather than by any intrinsic truth or lack of it in the statement, we are reversing the idea on which the Enlightenment and indeed the whole of Western civilization is based. Consider, if I were to stand here and make a statement like, Islam has a problem with homosexuality, that statement would be wholly judged by whether I was Muslim or non-Muslim, whether I was gay or straight. Or it would have almost nothing to do with people trying to assess whether it was valid. And we are, in other words, returning to this rather pre-modern idea of caste. The idea that we are born with an identity and that everything we say and do is unchangeable. We are turning our back on the whole basis of modernity. There was a, a long-serving prime minister between the wars, in fact, prime minister for most of the interwar period in Britain, Stanley Baldwin, a rather solid, anti-intellectual businessman from Worcestershire. And towards the end of his life, he gave an interview and he was asked whether he had been intellectually influenced by any theorist or any writer. And rather surprisingly, he said, yes, Stanley Baldwin was not, not a man who read many books, but rather to the astonishment of the interview, he said, yes, I was. As a young man, I was very influenced by the works of the jurist and historian uh, Sir Henry Maine. And it was through coming to know his corpus of work that I came to understand that all of human history is a move from status to contract. And then he paused and frowned and said, or was it the other way around? <laughs> now, it, it's a nice little illustration of how even the most brilliantly original idea can become dull and smooth through repetition. But just for a second, 
pause and ponder the brilliance of that original insight, status to contract. For 10,000 years, since we first discovered that if you put seeds in the ground, crops would grow in the same place. All human relations had been mediated by birth, caste, and tradition. The essence of the Enlightenment, the essence of the modern world, the root of all the things that we take for granted that make our lives prosperous and comfortable and reasonable, is the notion that each of us is free to enter into one-off contracts with other people as autonomous individuals. Already, like Baldwin, we find that idea so obvious because we've, we've been habituated to it. it. It no longer seems radical. It's a very difficult thing to grasp quite what a huge break it was from the history of post-agrarian humanity. But perhaps what's happening now is simply that we're reverting to the norm. Perhaps the 300 years of wealthy and liberal enlightenment was the exception. Because I can't help noticing, as I observe our current discourse, that we've revived this idea that what we're allowed to say and what we're allowed to do should be determined by random external characteristics that we're born with. And so, uh, uh, let me, here's a, a, a list of news stories that I plucked at random before I left the, the UK. Jamie Oliver was in trouble for producing something called uh, Jamaican Jerk Barbecue. Apparently, uh, it is improper for anyone who isn't a Jamaican to produce uh, cuisine that is Jamaican-inspired. I mean, to be fair, I'm quite in favor of destroying Jamie Oliver on grounds of his repeated sins against uh, the culinary tradition of all countries, but it does seem unusual to single out this Jamaican, rather than his, for example, uh, abominable attempt at paella, or, you know, it, it, it is, the, of course, the essence of, of cuisine that you're constantly cross-fertilizing. Uh, an actor called Jack Whitehall, very funny stand-up comic, was in trouble for uh, accepting the part of a gay character in a Disney production despite not being gay. Now, I, I, I'm bound to think, well, but he's an actor, you know, <laughs> The essence of being an actor is that you're pretending to be someone else. They all, with the possible exception of Michael Caine, they all do that, right? It's, <laughs> it's, it, it's, the, it's in the job description. There were two stories side by side, and this is where you realize that, that we've cast off whatever ropes attached us to, to, to reality. Two stories side by side that, on the one hand, there was a terrible row because a woman who was going to sing the part of Maria in West Side Story was not Latin American, not a fellow Latin American, I should say, having been born and brought up in Lima. A reminder that we are a heterogeneous bunch, we Hispanics. Uh, <laughs> and at the same time, there was this sort of witch hunt for people who did not uncomplicatedly celebrate the news that the next James Bond might be Idris Elba. Now, one or the other, right? I mean, either it's important for people to play a part that is defined by their physiognomy, or it isn't. But you can't simultaneously, or at least you shouldn't simultaneously, demand both. It becomes very difficult to keep up with what the next offensive thing is going to be when the rules are constantly being changed. 
Now, for what it's worth, I think Idris Elba would be a brilliant James Bond. James Bond has now become an iconic figure. He may have been, you know, Scottish and, uh, and Swiss in the books, but long ago he cast off whatever literary roots and just became a figure of contemporary Britishness. Why he stays the same age as the technology advances and the cars get better and the M's and Q's come and go. He has been acted on stage by English actors, by Irish actors, by Scottish actors, and by one Australian. We can discuss whether a plank of wood would have done a better job than the Australian did. <laughs> but nonetheless, I think we've established that this is a figure that transcends uh, nationality. But what I'm saying is, it's very difficult to have it both ways. Right? And yet, people do. There was a, a wonderful example of how Saturn devours her children, how the revolution ends up gobbling them all up, uh, when the, the Nation, which is the, the main sort of lefty paper in, in the US, had this huge row because it published, I, I thought, a perfectly sensitive and well-written poem that was written from the point of view of a homeless black woman. And it was written in black American vernacular, apparently very authentically, according to experts in that subject. But it then turned out that the author was not black or female. And this led, not only from him, but from all of the editors, to the kind of uh, self-accusatory show trial statements that we would have associated with Stalin's Russia or Mao's China. And you've got to wonder, how on earth can you keep up? If somebody is determined to take offense, they will manage to take offense. There's no defense now in saying, but that's inconsistent with what you were saying five minutes ago. Because everything is defined by the feeling of the recipient. Their feelings trump your facts. And in that situation, it is literally impossible to avoid giving offense. So, for example, you are simultaneously told by exactly the same people that gender is a social construct, that it's all imagined, that none of it is innate. And yet, with the next breath, that it is an absolute right of every human being to change their gender in law and have that recognized. Well, either it matters or it, or it doesn't, but not both at the same time. We're told that uh, race is a, a, a construct, that we're all the same under the skin, and yet, at the same time, we're told that everything from who plays James Bond to university admission should be determined by these physical characteristics. Just to, to demonstrate how bizarre and arbitrary that is, give you an example of when it started. What's now called affirmative action in the United States? In other words, discrimination in university entrance on the basis of membership of a, an ethnic group which is deemed to be underrepresented. That was something that was practiced by almost every fascist government in continental Europe between the wars. The underrepresented group, according to these fascist governments, was of course the non-Jewish population. Their argument was, there are too many Jews at universities, we need to level uh, the, the scales. And of course, by too many, they meant as a proportion of the overall population. They didn't mean as a proportion of the educated population or the urban population or indeed the number of people applying, right? Very uh, comparable. Now, let me suggest that the sorts of people who are now demanding racial quotas in university would be horrified to be told that it was exactly the same policy as was being pursued by fascist regimes in interwar Europe. And yet, it is an identical policy. It's simply that the labels have changed. And if you, think I'm, if you think I'm laying that on a bit too thick, if you think I'm going too far with this analogy, consider this. In one of the states of Brazil, 
where there was an official government-sanctioned affirmative action program. It turned out that people were turning up on the basis, there was, it was a, a number of reserved places for black students, people were turning up who didn't look black enough, because they had a, a black grandmother or whatever. So guidelines were laid down, I'm not making this up, saying the applicants need to be phenotypically black, and there were people measuring their noses and the extent to which their hair curled. Right? Now, I hope all of you will find that a repulsive idea. And yet it's different only in degree from what happens throughout the West. Either, as John said, either you judge people by the content of their character, or you decide that something else has primacy. And for me, the essence of civilization is precisely that you give everyone a chance to function as an individual, that we judge people by whether they're kind, courteous, intelligent, entrepreneurial, industrious. We don't define them by accident of physiognomy. The essence of, uh, of individualism is that we reject collective identity. Now again, people can, on one level, almost everyone would agree that to define people wholly by membership of a group, or primarily by membership of a group, uh, is unfair and a denial of their rights. Right? It, it, when, when a state engages in collective punishment of another population, we all recoil. But we have to extend our logic. If collective punishment is objectionable, collective entitlement is surely equally objectionable, inescapably, and on precisely the same ground. This bizarre malady of our age, this sickness that has stolen over us, is particularly advanced on campus. The reason that Sydney University seems to have problems with something calling itself Western civilization is because it really does have a problem with Western civilization. If by Western civilization we mean diversity, variety, pluralism, and the elevation of the individual over the collective. Now, you might say, uh, you know, academics and students have always been lefties. True. But something new has crept in very recently, which is this determination to internalize everything, to make everything about you and how you feel. To give you a, a, an example, I, I was at Oriel College, Oxford. Uh, this was the college which had the statue of Rhodes, of Cecil Rhodes, which attracted such furious protests two years ago. Now, I can imagine a group of angry students protesting against the diamond magnate in the 60s or the 70s or the 80s. And that protest would have been, in those days, essentially a, a bullying kind of protest. It would have been a, an assertion of what they regard as a better ideology. We will not allow a symbol of Western colonialism to stand because ours is the new age and we get to set the rules. I mean, as an aside, I think you will struggle to find anyone in Africa at the time of Rhodes of any color who was closer to modern sensibilities than he was. This is the guy who campaigned strongly to enfranchise native, or rather campaigned against the attempt to disfranchise natives in, in Cape Colony. He was a guy who funded the newspaper of what's now the ANC. He was a liberal in the Victorian time, literally a member of the Liberal Party, a big donor to it. But let, leave that aside. The new thing 
was that people were choosing to be hurt rather than simply to assert their values. That the, the, there was a, a unique and unprecedented tone of injury that had crept in to the discourse. I suffer pain every time I have to walk past the statue. We heard over and over again. By the way, I say statue. It's a, it's a sort of two-foot-tall, guano-encrusted mannequin set up in a, in a niche. You really have to, to crane your neck to see the thing that you're determined to be offended by. But this is a very recent and sudden phenomenon. Before the, the year 2015, I don't think anyone had heard the term microaggression or the term cultural appropriation or uh, the term safe space or the term trigger warning. The sudden fragility of our universities is a new and alarming phenomenon. And what does it, uh, you know, it's got to the point where, again, it's just, just if I stick with Oxford, law undergraduates are now given a trigger warning before they are allowed to read about violent cases that might upset them. And would, you, would you hire a lawyer who had that background? How did this happen so quickly? Well, there's a, there's a fascinating book that came out about six weeks ago uh, by Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff called The Coddling of the American Mind, which assesses where it came from. Jonathan Haidt is a behavioral psychologist, very, very brilliant man. And he goes beyond, he doesn't just do the easy book about what a bunch of, of, of wimps and snowflakes. He looks at changes in child rearing from the 90s that led to a more fragile generation. And the wonder, anyone here with kids or with grandchildren, the one thing that he says at the end is, we need to give our children time when they are unscheduled and unsupervised. The thing that they're not getting anymore and which is leaving them very badly prepared, is an afternoon that they have to fill themselves without any adult involvement. They have to set the rules of the game. They have to decide who's in what team. They have to work out what happens if they fall over and gash their knee. All of us took that for granted. But if you uh, wrap those children in bubble wrap, literally in the sense that playgrounds have now been made safe and so on, if from the moment they go to school they are taught in anti-bullying classes, that anything that somebody says that is hurtful should be regarded as a kind of abuse, then when they get to university, they are, of course, not able to understand that a difficult opinion or a disagreeable person is not a form of violence against them. This has become ubiquitous. I, I have a... Uh, my, my youngest child is two. I was looking, at some, looking around some schools a few weeks ago, and almost all of them now, on their wall, have a statement of anti-bullying aims. I think this is a global phenomenon. And they all define it as any kind of behavior or action that somebody finds hurtful. Well, I mean, you know, I might find eating a turkey sandwich hurtful. I mean, it, it, and yet this is, this is what it's all about. This is, as, uh, as Francis Fukuyama says, the modern form of identity politics prioritizes the internal and subjective feeling over empiricism, over whether something actually happened. Ideas, in other words, certain ideas are sacralized, are lifted out of the realm of free inquiry and are made invulnerable to criticism. Now, again, this is a pre-modern idea. For a long time, 
humanity operated on the basis that all truth was contained somewhere, usually in a sacred book. Not necessarily. I mean, uh, the, the Marxists treated the tomes of their founders every bit as literally as a fundamentalist religious person in an earlier age. But what there wasn't was any allowance of the idea that because we were ignorant, because our knowledge was limited, the best thing we could do was to allow other ideas to flourish and then see if somebody knew something that we didn't. That's not a, an idea that comes naturally. It characterized particularly in Britain and the West the last couple of centuries. But it's not an innate sense. And in sacralizing certain ideas, now ideas to do with uh, race, gender, and so on, rather than religious ideas, the authorities behave very like the old religious authorities because they don't really believe any of this stuff. When somebody says Western civilization is racist, oppressive, and so on, they don't actually mean that you would have been better off as a poor person, an ethnic minority, a gay person in an alternative civilization. They're not actually standing there saying, I, you know, it would have been better down the years to have been poor or gay or a minority in Persia or Abyssinia or Russia or Japan. They're making a statement that may not be questioned, but that they don't actually have to sustain. So I was say, saying to Sarah Switzer just over dinner, when the, when the Galileo trial happened, the position of the church was fascinating. They, they didn't say, uh, all of this is untrue and, uh, and you're not allowed to believe it. They said, it's perfectly okay to act as if the sun was orbited by the planets and as if the, the, the solar system were heliocentric for the purposes of navigation and geography. So you're allowed to, as long as you don't assert that this is true from a source that is non-biblical. That, I would say, is an almost exact description of where our campus censors are on issues of identity politics. Now, this talk is about uh, the West and Western civilization. And I wanted to stress, in a sense, why Sydney University is right to find the Western idea objectionable from their point of view. Let me do it by way of a little thought experiment. Suppose that you had been a visitor from another planet orbiting the Earth 500 years ago, looking out from your flying saucer at the fragile blue globe. Whom would you have put your money on to be the dominant civilization of the next 500 years? Put it to you that your eye would have been drawn to the mighty civilizations of Asia, the Ming and Mughal and Ottoman empires, with their extraordinary technological superiority over the West, with their ocean-going ships, and their gunpowder, their paper money, their cartography, their astronomy, their canals, Perhaps your eye would have drifted over to the broken, scattered tribes at the western tip of the Eurasian landmass. You would have had no doubt that China was going to sail around the Horn of Africa and discover Portugal rather than the other way around. Why didn't that happen? I don't want to oversimplify. Part of it was that Europe never became a centralized state. It remained a diverse plurality, a competing system of varying states that were able to pilot new ideas, trial new schemes, copy what worked best abroad. 
The, the thesis actually due to a very brilliant Australian historian called E.L. Jones, who wrote this wonderful uh, book, The European Miracle, where he exactly described that the essence of, of European civilization was not becoming a superstate. But I don't need to make that speech anymore because we won the referendum two years ago, and what the EU now does uh, going down the road to the Ming-Mogul-Ottoman harmonization is its problem, I'm glad to say, rather than mine. But the other reason that the West ultimately came to dominate the last half millennium was because it prioritized the notion of science and empiricism. Here was a civilization that said, we don't know everything. A guy that I don't like may nonetheless have something useful to say. It's better for him to say it and then to measure the truth of his assertion by some objective yardstick. That idea may seem obvious to us, right? But that's because we're products of a system that has inculcated in us uh, that idea since we first went to school. It's not one that comes naturally, right? Why was this country settled from the, the West rather than from any other uh, geographically closer civilization? Again, your, your alien peering out of that porthole would not have put money on Australia being colonized by a place that was as far as you could get from it and still be on dry land. Well, actually, the story of how, it came, uh, how Australia came to be discovered very neatly illustrates the supremacy of, uh, of science uh, and the supremacy of empiricism in Western thought. 1769 was a year of the transit of Venus. And in Britain, people thought this is a, a, a great opportunity to tr use triangulation to try and work out how distant the Earth is from the sun. It was knowledge for its own sake, but it was the product of a civilization that valued free inquiry. So they sent people out to the most remote bits of the world to try and get distant measures to do the trigonometry. And on the way, of course, James Cook discovered this rather significant landmass. Australia is, in other words, literally a product of free inquiry and the scientific mind. The settlement and story of this land could otherwise have been very different. But as I say, it's unnatural. That idea of science and empiricism began only recently and has spread only slowly. The idea of free speech and free inquiry that we, we owe to Mill and to Locke and ultimately to John Milton is one that has been largely confined to the language in which you're listening to these words. You read what John Milton said, or what he wrote in 1644. Again, this sounds unremarkable now, but was utterly mind-blowing at the time, he said, though all the winds of doctrine were let loose to play upon the earth, so truth be in the field, we do injuriously by licensing and prohibiting to doubt her strength. Let her and falsehood grapple. Whoever knew truth put to the worse in a free and open encounter. Now, the, the grumpy old Puritan poet was saying something absolutely extraordinary and unprecedented. He was saying, the truth is not something that's, that's permanently there that we just need to kind of uh, feel our way towards by the authority of princes or prelates or popes. But rather, let's have a free market of ideas. Let the good ideas and the bad ones bounce off each other, and out of the din, out of the cacophony, the truth will emerge. That is as neat a summary of the scientific method as you could ask. And it is absolutely at odds with everything that our kids are now being encouraged to believe, where we've reverted to the idea of truth being defined by 
circumstance. Let me leave you with a, a disquieting thought. All of these ideas, all of these ideas that we trace back to Milton, are ideas that you need to teach. Nobody is born understanding the value of experimentation. We, we have minds that were designed for the savannas of Pleistocene Africa. We weren't built for this world of skyscrapers, and we operate according to older heuristics, older rules of thumb and shortcuts. And one of those is, in fact, maybe the ultimate heuristic, my tribe good, your tribe bad. It is innate in the exact sense, it's in our genome, to judge an idea primarily by whether we like the person saying it rather than by the intrinsic merits of the idea. 300 years of Western civilization have brought us to the point where we can teach ourselves instead to assess it objectively. But look at what's happening now in higher education. Instead of being counter-cyclical, instead of teaching people to overcome their biases, we're teaching our kids in a way that is pro-cyclical. We're teaching them that what they say is defined by who they are and by their place in an imagined hierarchy of privilege and oppression. We are, in other words, teaching people to undo the mode of thinking that makes possible pluralism, democracy, and an open society. And let me now vindicate all the people who say that Western uh, advocates of Western civilization are being triumphalist. Do you know what? It is a better system. It's a better system that has raised our species to a pinnacle of wealth and happiness that was previously unimaginable. I am glad that this country was colonized by people who had an idea of individual freedom and parliamentary rule and limited government and an open society. Consider what some of the alternatives were at the time. There are few places that have played a happier role in the affairs of mankind than Australia. Three times in the last century, Systems that elevated the individual over the collective contended against systems that did the reverse, the two world wars and the Cold War. Three times, systems that elevated the rules above the rulers contended against systems that did the opposite. How many countries were on the right side in all three conflicts? Not a very long list, but Britain, Australia, and the other great English-speaking democracies are on it. This shouldn't need saying. But the mentality of the people who want to reject the study of Western civilization in the university in this city is the same as the mentality of the people who are saying that we should tear down the statues of James Cook and of Governor Macquarie. And what are they really saying when they want to pull down those statues? What is it that we remember Cook and Macquarie for? What they're really saying is the world would have been a better place if Anglophone Australia had not come into existence at all. Where else would you rather have lived? Where else would you rather have been poor? Where else would you rather have been disadvantaged? Where else would you rather have been in a minority? Where else have freedom and human happiness been so securely guarded as in our societies? When he was explaining why Australia entered the Second World War, Robert Menzies came out with a lovely description of what we, was, what we were fighting for. He said, we're fighting for good humor fair play, and the right of every individual to seek self-fulfillment in his own way. Pretty good summary of the values that underpinned 
Western civilization in general, and I have to say English-speaking civilization in particular. Maybe when we call it Western civilization, we're being polite in order to be inclusive. Imagine that the Second World War had ended differently. Imagine that the Cold War had ended differently. I suspect that these values would have been in a far weaker place on our planet. But those values were distilled here and reached a unique potency. A nice line that Tocqueville used writing about the, the settlement of, of North America, where he said, the American is the Englishman left to himself. Well, I think that line applies with extra force to this continent. People came here, if you like, with the toolkit of parliamentary democracy and personal freedom and private property, but found that they were given free reign in a new world to devise their own structures. And they've done so in a way that has created a wealthier and freer society than any other in the region. And if you doubt that, ask yourselves why the in-queue is so much longer than the out-queue. If Western civilization in general and Australian civilization in particular are these evil, oppressive, and racist concepts, why is it that people are prepared to risk so much to have the chance to begin from the bottom of the heap here? It's a remarkable record, and it's a record you should be proud of. And it's one that you should be serious about inculcating in the next generation. Not only in universities, but in every school. The duty of organizations like this is to remind Australians that they are not just a random set of individuals born to a different random set of individuals, that wherever their parents or grandparents were born, they are now inheritors of a unique patrimony. That you have the duty to keep intact the freedoms that you were privileged enough to inherit from your parents and pass them on securely to the next generation. Never be afraid to speak to and for the soul of this great country, of which, by good fortune and God's grace, you are privileged to be part.